Welcome to another edition of Smith and Jones. Eric Smith, Paul Jones with you. Make sure you subscribe to Smith and Jones wherever you get your podcast. Google, Apple, Spotify, or otherwise. We've uh, been back on the air now a couple of weeks, and here we are, week three, ready to roll, Jonesy. And let's get at it. It's American Thanksgiving, and we bring in to the conversation a former colleague of ours, a longtime friend of ours, the radio play-by-play voice of the Chicago Bulls, Chuck Swirsky. Chuck, before we even talk any X's and O's, talk about the Bulls, talk about the Raptors, the NBA, whatever else, I want to ask you something here. It's, of course, American Thanksgiving. We already gave the well wishes to you off the air, but I'll officially say it again on the air. Happy Thanksgiving to you and to anybody that's out there listening that is celebrating uh, today or or whenever they're listening to this show. Um, Something pops into my mind when it comes to holidays in the NBA, and this is like kind of one of those out there questions, but I thought it might be a fun way to start this thing. I remember Kevin O'Neal on Halloween opening night being asked by our former colleague Matt Bloom when the scrums had all wrapped up, it was like, you know, no other major media was there, no other super intense, you know, really needed questions or answers were, were, were taking place. And Matt, on behalf of NBA TV Canada, Raptors TV, was asking a very fun, kind of lighthearted thing for a little feature, saying, Coach, do you have a memory of, like, uh, you know, a costume maybe that you wore as a kid that really stands out or something you remember? And Kevin O'Neill looks over at Jim LaBombard, the Raptors PR guy at the time, and with a few colorful choice words added in, basically said, is there no end to the ridiculousness that I have to put up with? And he was dead serious, pissed off that he was even being asked that question. That was on opening night. And it makes me think, Halloween, got any Christmas or Thanksgiving memories, whether it be on or off the court, directed to your job, to the NBA that stand out? Chuck, I know I'm totally putting you on the spot here, but any holiday NBA memories that really stand out for you? Wow. Holiday NBA memories. Well, yeah, I remember when Vinsanity took off, and you guys will remember this, and NBC showcased the Raptors at the Garden in New York. And it was Christmas night, I believe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, and while we're speaking, I'm sure you can probably Google it, I believe it was a 6 p.m. start time in New York. And the Raptors were an up-and-coming team, and they did not play well uh, against the Knicks. But that was really the first exposure And they had been on national TV, I believe, prior to that. I know the first time Vince was on NBC was a Sunday game in Toronto against Phoenix, where he had 51. But um, as far as Christmas Day games, I vividly recall that uh, with the um, Raptors in New York. And, I mean, before the NBA shut down on Thanksgiving, I remember the uh, Raptors played – Indiana on the road um, and, you know, sprinkled here and there with the Bulls and the Raptors because I've been doing this now 26 years. Um, and there are, I'm sure, are other events. Um, but, you know, that game that you just recalled, that was Chris Bosch's first game. And the reason I remember that is I lost my voice. I should not have done the game. And that was on me. I should have given the baton to to Paul or yourself, Eric, and I let my ego get in the way, and I will never allow that to happen again. I learned a very valuable lesson that, you know what, 
when the pipes go out, the pipes go out, and you just say, hey, you know what? Uh, you got to think big picture and not of yourself, which I did, and I apologize. And so uh, the Kevin O'Neill era was an interesting one because, you know, we went from Lenny Wilkins, who was really a hands-off guy, especially by that time in his coaching career, and the ball club really needed discipline. And Kevin O'Neill had that reputation as the Pistons assistant, but also in college basketball. And some of the things Kevin did were really good. I mean, he was into when the plane leaves at 2, if we're scheduled to leave at 2, we're leaving at 2. And I'm into that. I buy that. I like structure. I think discipline is really important to lay the foundation. But, you know, the the Kevin O'Neill short one-year run came to a screeching halt um, when Jalen Rose went down in Phoenix and we started losing players. Alvin Williams went down, Vince went down, and what looked like a playoff team, to what degree, I'm not sure, uh, but, you know, things then fell apart and it spiraled out of control. Hey, Jonesy, let me jump in real quick just for a second there because Chuck was asking us to Google it. Uh, it obviously, it was 2001. I, I never doubt your memory, Chuck, or Jonesy's, for, for that matter. You guys, like, have these photographic memories. Uh, Toronto fell to 15-13 and 13 with that loss uh, to the New York Knicks. Vince had only 15 points in that game on 6 of 20 shooting. Um, our, our guy, Mo Pete, had 22, albeit in the loss. And Alvin Williams, who's going to be joining us on this show uh, in the second half of the program, 18 points, 7 rebounds, 5 assists, yet another solid performance for Boogie Williams as he tends to do at MSG. Of course, as I throw it back to you, Jonesy, because I know you've noted it and talked about it so many times in the past, the playoff game at MSG standing out more so than any other when it comes to Alvin Williams. But I just wanted to jump in there to make sure that we, we got that. It was 2001 when the Raptors lost. It was actually 102-94, the final score, but the final score was not reflective of how much the Knicks really did dominate and control that game pretty much from tip to buzzer. Did and, and, you know, Chuck, it takes me back to uh, a different era when I look at the way the game has changed now and I think about some of the great players of yesteryear as, you know, I sound like the old man right now, but the evolution of the game, uh, it's all about timing. I I just think about some of the great three-point shooters, the great shooters that basically had their hands tied because of the way the game was played in that era. You, you know, you think of, you know, uh, like a Dale Ellis back in the day or, you know, even, even a Dell Curry. And, you know, some of those guys that could really play and really shoot the ball, but coaches, you know, coaches weren't having that because they were tied to a specific way of playing. How, I guess my question is, Chuck, how much are you enjoying this, this new... And you work with Billy Wennington, who's an old school kind of guy. Like, how much do you enjoy the way the game is being played now? I know I do, but I'll say this: my qualifier, with a little taste of, let's be a little bit more selective because there are some people taking shots that probably shouldn't be taking those shots. Well, you know what, Paul? Uh, that's a, a really good question. I'm going to answer it this way. 
I think we, meaning collectively in the media, need to refocus and consider the fact that it's now 2023. And I hear what you're saying, but the evolution of the game in different eras, in different generations, and the way the game is coached, the way the game is played in the States, in Canada, globally, is now an outside-inside game. Now, if Shaq happened to be in 2023, he'd still be dominant, and they would still feed the ball in the post. Nobody could touch him. But there is no Shaq. And last night in Oklahoma City, I saw Chet Holmgren. This is the second time we played him. We played Holmgren in his first-ever NBA game. As we know, he missed all of last year with the foot situation. But he is playing the five. And this is the new look five when you have a talent that that is so dynamic in pick and rolls and three-point shooting. And, oh, by the way, he's going to be an exquisite shot blocker. So the thing that, you know, when, when we see and break down this game, Paul and Eric, you get dry penetration to the rim. You see a seam in the lane to the basket. And what should be a shot in the restricted area, they pass the ball to the corner. And now they're trained. And they are so locked into three is better than two. I've got a man open in the wing, the corner, whatever, and I need to get him the ball. Because at the end of the game, the first stat I always look at, how many threes did the Bulls make compared to their opposition? Um, and it's puzzling at times because fans always say, wow, he passed up an open layup. He probably did. If it was going to be contested, it probably wasn't going to be a strong contested attempt. But, again, if you have the right people shooting the three, I can understand that. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's just my take. That's Chuck. Sure Chuck. does. Chuck, let, let, me, let me stay on that for a second then and just talking in generalities. Obviously, the two that come to mind more than anybody, Wembenyama and Chet Holmgren. That is the new way, no doubt, or at least it, you know teams are going to try to mimic that or, or, or find it if they can. I don't know how many of those dudes are out there growing on trees, but it's certainly the new wave. Is there any possible way in your mind that – I can't imagine it's a flip of the script going back completely traditional to – dude in the post, back down, big guy. That that age, at least for now, is done. But is there something to be said for as talented as these guys are, as great as they are as shooters and the handle and the blocks and everything else, they're real thin as well. Is that still something that you can take advantage of, or is it just purely their athleticism and their talent is making up for the fact that they could get bodied, but they don't get bodied because of all the other intangibles beyond just their size, their weight, their girth, etc.? Well, you know what, Eric, this is, this is something, this is going to be a wave now uh, because of nutrition or just uh, the way that, you know, the, the humanity of life and the way the physicality and the way these kids are being brought up and how big they are globally. I mean, I'm not saying every team's going to have three seven-footers, but we better get used to the fact that if these kids – are coached and developed properly and the growth spurt is there that we're going to see more and more of this in the league in the next 
15, 20, 25 years. So I think that, you know, Chet Holmgren, he was coached by Jalen Suggs' dad in AAU ball in Minneapolis. Mark Few, an exceptional college coach. This guy, his basketball IQ is amazing. Wemby's basketball IQ, amazing. I mean, they're going to have, I'm glad in a sense they're in the same conference because we're going to be treated the four Oklahoma City San Antonio games. And I know it may not be sexy, you know, to see Thunder, Spurs, but the individual matchup is going to be worth it. And we're going to have plenty of national exposure every time these two guys play. And it's going to be great. Um, but I, I, Eric, in all candor, and again, you invite me on your show, I'm going to tell you it like it is. I think the physicality of the league uh, from the days where Paul, me, you, Jack, Leo, everyone in, involved, Alvin Williams, I think those days are gone until the rules change. And if the rules change, then we can revisit this conversation. But until then, I think they really want to have these players' skill set brought to the forefront. And I can live with that. I just wish it was a little bit more physical. And when I say that, I'm not talking about fights, and I'm not talking about cheap shots. I mean, we saw those days in the 80s. But I'm talking about just we're giving a defensive player, a player in a defensive position, a chance to compete to bring out what they can on the defensive side of the ball. That's all. Chuck, I agree. There is no defense right now in the NBA. They have devalued defense. They have. And and when I look at it, it's not the only place it's happened. I know you're a football fan and people talk about, you know, what a great tight end Rob Gronkowski was. Well, some of you youngsters, go and Google because John Mackey, or a Kellen Winslow could have done all that Gronkowski could have done had the rules allowed him to do it. And I don't think we're going to ever see that level of physicality. But I just want the defender to have a chance, and I want the, the retraining of officials to occur so we stop rewarding embellishments. And because the defense has been devalued and, and guys get calls, I want the calls to be legit, not ones that are made up. But you're right, Chuck, and it's always been that way. A good big beats a good little any day of the week. And when you talk about guys like Holmgren and Wembenyama, and we saw the, you know, the first generation of that with, I did, back in 1975 when I saw, I thought in my day, the original stretch four in a guy named Bob McAdoo, who was on my wall as a kid, the poster for the Buffalo Braves, and we've had uh, Garnett and Durant and people like that since. I, I, I agree with you, Chuck. I don't think it's going to change. My question is, when do they allow the game to be, as you said, a little bit more physical so it can be a little bit more competitive and not give these guys all of the advantages, not give the offense all of the advantages? That's my question. Yeah, I, I understand, Paul, and I think the competition committee in the NBA, it depends who sits on that committee and how much pull they've got to tweak it. I mean, we're not going to have a zero to 60 overnight and say, hey, guess what? Now you can put a forearm in the guy's back 
uh, or a hand check like in the 70s on somebody's waist and impede their progress. That's not going to happen overnight. But subtly, little things that they can change. And um, But for now, I think if you ask most fans, they will say they want to come to an NBA game, they want to be entertained, and they want to see players play above the rim. They, they do like the three-point shot. I think they enjoy fast-break basketball. And if they've got an exciting player on their team, somebody that they can put their hard-earned money you know, on the table and say, I want to attend an NBA game because of that player, like Toronto had with Carter and McGrady to a certain extent, but really Vince. We had never seen a player like Vince on a nightly basis. Paul, you were there from day one, as Eric was, but the fans never had seen a player on a day-in, day-out basis like Vince Carter play above the rim. And Vince did it multiple times during the game. It was a dunkathon. So if you are in Oklahoma City and you're watching Shea Gilgis-Alexander nightly, and I watched the Portland OKC game, and correct me if I'm wrong, guys, I thought with with uh, the broadcasters, Kevin Clabro and his analysts were talking about um, SGA, and they said, you know what? We're not going to compare him to a player. We're going to compare him to a toy that a lot of kids had in the 70s, and it was called the Slinky. And and a Slinky, how would you how would you describe a Slinky? It was hmm, uh, all I can tell you is that you would put it on the steps, and it would just go up and down the steps, and it had you know just a a way of a spring, and and so I I really believe that that's where the game is at. I mean, I, I love the game. I would like to tweak it, but for now, it is what it is. Um, yeah, I'm thinking about your slinky here, Chuck. I don't know how else to describe it. Yeah, like wiry and just kind of able to twist and turn wherever yeah. it wants to go. I don't think it went up, Wherever though. it goes. I mean, yeah, it goes down, but I don't think it went up. <laughs> but but either way, well, well, either I mean, way, we hear you. Um, talk, you know, go ahead, you, Chuck. Yeah, I do have a question because I was in Chicago when Shea was playing hoops in Hamilton. But I mean, I mean, obviously he was a good player. He went to Kentucky, so he got recruited there. So it's not like you know we're talking about a guy that you know was a borderline talent. But I mean, if you're the Clippers right now and they were in a win-mode situation when they made that trade with Paul George. If you're the Clippers, you're probably saying to yourself, everything we're looking for in a point guard right now, he's playing hoops for the Thunder. Yeah. Yep. Yep. You're bang on. You're bang on about that, Chuck. Um, and obviously he's been the guy that we've been talking a lot about for, for well, for a couple of years now, but certainly the last couple of months, Jonesy, bring you into the conversation too, Chuck, as it relates to Canada and the success the Canadians had in the summertime at the Worlds and then looking ahead to next year uh, with with the Olympic Games and whatnot. Um, Chuck, let, let me ask you this because we can't, we can't talk to you and not at least ask the question. And, and listen, I, I know the, the answer. I'd be saying the same thing from a Raptors perspective. We've talked to you about trades in the past as well. You're not the GM. You're not the president. You're just the broadcaster. I get that. What's your sense, though, of what direction Chicago might be heading with a team that has some talent on paper, 
but maybe doesn't have enough talent to be a championship squad. They've got some young pieces, but maybe not enough young pieces to be really looking at saying, hey, we're going to be there in a couple of years. But at the same time, maybe not wanting to hit the blow-up button and completely tear it down. And there's lots of rumblings about Zach Levine and, and, and whomever else, DeMar DeRozan's contract up at the end of the season, all that stuff. Like, where do you kind of see or do you even get a sense of where Chicago might be leaning one way or the other as the season evolves? You, you know what, Eric? Um, well, my standard answer is that you're right. I mean, you know, like I'm just an observer. But I've seen this team play. And, I mean, you know, to me, I think Zach Levine is a terrific, terrific player. And so whether he stays, whether he goes, he's going to be a terrific player, whether it's in Chicago or any other NBA market. I mean, he's got a lot of skill, a lot of talent. I mean, he's a two-time All-Star, and he, if you look at the stats, and Paul, you probably have them in front, I think he could be in the top 10 or close to the cusp of being top 10 in minutes played in the league. So he is healthy. He's 28 years young. Um, DeMar is fantastic. You know, and this is true, and you can ask him when you see him tomorrow. Every game, every game when I see him, I approach him, I walk up to him, I tell him I love him and that he's appreciated because this guy just went over 22,000 career points last night against the Thunder. He is a Hall of Fame player. He's an incredible person, as you know. You were there from day one with him. But I, and I don't know where that's headed because he's in the last year of his deal, but I think the guy is fantastic. If you need a hoop, he will get you a hoop. And when I say that, he will he will go to the foul line. He will find a way to get it done. And um, and so then you got Booch, and I think there is still a huge place in the game for Booch, who can put his backside to the rim, do the curl with the baby hook, left and right hand, and who's by the way averaging seventeen and ten. People have no idea that they should appreciate players who average double-doubles in this league. I think we act like this is like a a video game. Oh, he's got, you know, 18 and 12. You know how hard it is to get 18 and 12 on a nightly basis in the NBA? So whatever they want to do, if they are going to make a trade, they make a trade. If they don't, they don't. Hey, you know what? Just give me a seat at the table and let me call the game. (laughs) I hear that, Swirsk. Loud and clear. Loud and clear. Listen, again, happy Thanksgiving. Uh, All the best. We appreciate you joining us on the holiday. And uh, I know it's probably uh, sweet and bittersweet for you to be celebrating American Thanksgiving in your other home uh, back in Canada. All right. Give me the drumstick and get out of the way. That was the radio play-by-play voice of the Chicago Bulls, Chuck Swirsky. When we come back, we will hook up with... Our colleague and our friend. Hey, it's kind of got a little, you know, common theme, a little vibe this week. Friends and family, I suppose, given that it's Thanksgiving weekend. Alvin Williams is up next on Smith & Jones. Welcome back to Smith & Jones. Eric Smith, Paul Jones with you. Again, subscribe to Smith & Jones wherever you get your podcasts, Google, Apple, Spotify, or otherwise. Download, subscribe, rate, and review. Thanks again to Chuck Swirsky for joining us off the top of the show. And this man's name came up in our conversation with the Swirsk, so I want to start right there where we were talking to Chuck about memories of holiday games. And Chuck mentioned 2001 MSG. Yes, it was a Raptor loss, but our guy, Alvin Williams, 
with 18 points, seven rebounds, five assists on Christmas Day. We bring into the conversation the aforementioned Alvin Williams. Al, happy Thanksgiving, and I'm thinking back to that game. Again, it was a loss. You guys kind of got it. You know, you were you were you were handed an L by the by the Knicks. The final score was a little kinder to you than the actual game itself. But you were balling, and as I said to Chuck and to Jonesy 20 minutes or so ago, something about that building, man. You seem to have some big time moments, and obviously the playoff one stands out more than any. But you and MSG really seem to be in sync, man, throughout your career. Now you know that's one of. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me, and happy thanks. Well, thanks for the happy Thanksgiving wishes. Um, I, uh, you know, it's always fun playing in MSG and just getting an early start in college. You know, going to Villanova and having a Big East tournament there, and playing St. John's there, and just getting a lot of, you know, just just getting acclimated to that environment. You always hear about our coach Steve Lapis was from New York, and he. He really laid the groundwork on the importance of and the significance of playing in New York. He always said that was the mecca, and it's just great. You know, it's always a good time, and you know, and, and it's funny you mentioned those numbers, eighteen, five, and seven, in a big time game. And I remember as a rookie, my career high up to that point was like nineteen, and I was telling Del Curry against the Phoenix Suns, and he bust out laughing. He was like, "What is your career high? Nineteen points?" And he bust out laughing. He said, "Man." I scored that in a quarter. That ain't no career high. So you spit out those numbers, and I'm like, nobody's probably going to think that was a big game. But for me back then, that that was a big game when you averaged about six or seven points. So thanks for that memory. Oh, that's a big game. That that's a big game. And Al, I want I wanted to ask you. You talk about your time in uh, playing in New York and and the Big East tournaments back in the day. And yeah, Steve Lapis was a was a New York guy. Are there and and you played in great buildings like Madison Square Garden. You played at the Palestra. You you played in some of these legendary buildings. But as a player, you always have some buildings that you look forward to. You know when you're on the bus going to the game or when you're walking the tunnel, walking to the locker room. You're like, it's not my gym, but I'm good here. I I, I feel yeah. real comfortable here. I'm about to go to work. I don't know what it is, Al, and I had that too, whether it was the lighting or the lighting or the fans or the the vibe with the city or or you know, always had the night game or the day game, whatever it was. Give me your list of buildings, Al, that when you walked into, you were like rubbing your hands together saying and the bubble over your head said, "I'm about to go to work." <laughs> New York definitely won. That's that's number one because again, it's not far from Philly, and you would have your family. They still could be there, so you you have that. You want to play well in front of your family and friends, and New York just their crowd and their acknowledgement and their knowledge and just their passion for basketball. That's New York City, and then you had the stars that come out, the, the actresses and the actors, like every, every entertainers. Everyone's coming out there, and then it's just a team. Like, you see certain guys over there. You see uh, uh, Stephon Marbury. You see a Mark Jackson. You see a Charlie Ward. You see a Latrell Sprewell, Alan Houston, Patrick Ewing. Like, those guys are guys that you look up to, you want to play against, you want to play well against. So, New York, it goes into all that. The other places, like L.A., it was always fun going out there in L.A., playing there because the same reason. Um, not the same passion that you feel from a New York City, but – they love their Lakers. They love their Lakers, and you see the entertainers and all those things out there. 
and you only get out there one time throughout the year. So you really want to try to show your show what you can do. The other thing, I, I love playing in Miami as well. And th- now you're starting to see the, the, the cities that are more that's hot, like those cities like that. But New York, Miami, L.A., and the one building I did love playing in was Sacramento because mm. at that time the Arco Arena, it was small, and they were right up on you. They had great teams, man. I just got a chance to see Jason Williams yesterday, two days ago in Orlando. So, And then Mike Bibby came. So it was always a challenge playing against those guards. But Sacramento – that was a great place as well. Even though I, I don't remember having big games there, it was just always a fun environment because the crowd was right on you. They had the cowbells, and you know they were on the verge of being one of those special teams. You know they just kept bumping into the Lakers. So those are some arenas that I love playing in. Um, but M- MSG was the but that was that was the all time. Al, like, you Al, said, like you know boxing, you got you got Ali. It's more than just basketball. It's, yeah. it's, it's you know that's the stage for entertainment. And it goes way, way back. So, you know, Madison Square Garden was always the place that that, that got you excited to play. Al, I'm going to give you, like, at least two, if not five questions in one here. When you talk about the entertainment component of this, especially when you now factor in this stage of your life, this stage of your career that you're at now, I, I, I might be wrong with this. I'm going to assume maybe you don't get recognized more but you get recognized as much as, if not more, than when you were a player because you're that much more visible now. You're on TV 40, 50, 70 times a season with various things from Raptor games to Canada games to whatever else, doing interviews and being on the road, and you're more arguably accessible now as a broadcaster to the fans courtside that are trying to say hello and want to take a picture and, and interact with you and all that, let alone alumni events and all that sort type of thing. So the the quote-unquote celebrity status of a professional athlete, but also then the ability to cozy up to that player, as I say, to get close to that player for a picture, for an autograph, etc. Just chat with us a little bit, of, if you can, about that component of this side of the job for you and how you've had to transition and adjust perhaps to that. But also, did you ever kind of catch yourself as that fan? Even at the NBA level, when you're talking about being at MSG or being in, in L.A., whether it be at Staples Center or otherwise, and, and looking and seeing whether it be uh, an actor or an actress or a musician or somebody that you really liked and, and you're kind of like, man, I'm playing in front of X. I'm, I'm, I'm really balling in front of Y. Like, did you ever catch yourself or were you always able to put the blinders on and be about the business? It, it was always it was it was it was a lot right it, it's funny you mentioned that because Vince and I was just talking and our thing was we always had to bump into Halle Berry like that was the biggest thing I, we got it Halle Berry and I remember going to LA and Halle Berry was at one of the games and I you know Vince was the megastar and I'm like hey hey man like you got to go talk to her like you're Vince Carter whatever the case may be so we would like as as much of a star as Vince Carter was Vince was very humble so it wasn't like, and he was young, so it wasn't like he had those relationships yet. But you know, as a fan, as a player, yeah, you still you admire other people for their work. But me, I was the guy that was more intrigued by the athletes, by by the people I was playing against. Like if I was to play Golden State at the time, and Muggsy Bogue was there, and you know, New York Knicks, Charles Oakley was there, or you see those guys like, oh my God, I'm playing against Michael Jordan, or I'm playing against you know Shaquille O'Neal. So. More than that, more than the people in the crowd, it was the people in the court that I really got a chance to, you know, I was more in awe with, you know, playing against those people. And then 
at that stage as a as an athlete, it was just hard to engage. Like, you know, being raised the way I was raised, you always gave everyone respect and you had appreciation. I learned that as well in, in college because there was some fanfare here at Villanova. But you give everyone respect, but you also had a job to do. Now when I have a job to do at my older age, I enjoy meeting new people. I enjoy and I can accept their appreciation or, you know, they're acknowledging what they enjoyed when I did play. And now, you know, you get some, you know, you get some, you get some props for being a broadcaster. So that's always, and I, I'm just at a different mind state. I'm, di- I'm in a different place in my life where I'm more engaging. I'm more accepting. And I appreciate it more because, you know, once you finish playing all of those calls, those calls stop, you know, people don't know who you are. And some people really, that, that impacts people's lives and the way they go about, how they live when people don't know them and when they can't, when they go into a building and they're, they're not waited on hand and foot. Luckily I never had that expectation, but I do enjoy meeting people at courtside and understand now what a fan is and, and the importance of engaging with just new people. So it's just, I, I would attribute that to me just growing as a person and being in a different phase in my life, opposed to being a basketball player and my concentration and my goal was to go out there and perform and do well for my team. So I didn't have a lot of time to engage. My mindset wasn't there yet. You talk about that and I look at, and we were talking to Chuck about this, uh, the way the NBA has engaged fans and they engage the regular fan now as much as they do the superstar. I mean, I think about back in the day, it was a big deal to see, you know, Jack Nicholson sitting courtside at, at Laker games or, you know, be in the garden and there's there's Hammer creating a stir. And, and those were special times. But the, the regular fan now gets that kind of engagement in terms of, uh, you know, access with social media and all of that. The game has really grown. And while it's competitive, and, and people at a level of basketball are very competitive around, you know, winning and losing. There seems to be an entertainment part of it that has become a much bigger component. And I think that's crept into the way the game's officiated, the rules, all of those things. And where's the line, Al, the hybrid line between it's competitive but it also has to be entertaining because I wonder if sometimes in my eyes, how much do you feel that one kind of overrules or takes over for the other uh, at, at times when we're watching the game? Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny you mention that. It's, it is it's interesting just finding that balance and that, that, that line where you are, it's entertainment and it's understood as entertainment, but it's only entertainment for pretty much, those, those, the fans, and then those players that have an understanding of that. Like if you were me in my shoes at the time, it wasn't entertainment. It was doing a job, and it was making sure you earned your minutes. You made sure you didn't do anything where your minutes could be taken away from you. So you take it, you take it, you have a different perspective of it. But I do, I do believe this. Like the entertainment is there. I think there's a is a understanding of that, and the players understand how you know their benefit benefiting from the entertainment. But I think there's a level of respect that's missing when you talk about fan engagement. I don't think the fans still go in there with a level of respect for players. So I think at the end of the day, there has to be something where where fans will respect players. Like It burns me up where I see a kid 
that has front row seats and they're telling LeBron James that he sucks. Or they're speaking not to just uh, LeBron James or any player out there, but you're talking to an adult, you're talking to a grown-up, you're talking to someone, and, and I, I think that's just a bad messaging for kids as, as, a, as, a, as a whole, and parents are there. So it's more than just basketball. It's, it's a society issue, but that level of respect needs to be there between the players and, and the fan base. And I, I, get, I get what the NBA is doing. I get where, where, where they're trying to move it to and how they're trying to engage everything. But there is a line, and if that line is not going to be respected, I think the NBA really needs to do a better job of protecting the player more. And the players, you know, we've seen in the past where a player does have authority to say, you know, that, that fan is heckling me too much and they can get him removed. But I think it's even more than that. So I think there has to be an understanding between the two. But there, I think the game has grown to that part where, that a point where entertainment is significant. It's huge for everyone benefiting from it financially and notoriety-wise. But there has to be a level of respect with that player engagement, player and fan engagement. So, Al, that, that maybe transitions perfectly. I'm, I'm hoping or assuming that you saw what happened uh, in San Antonio on Wednesday night with Kawhi Leonard going to the free throw line, uh, obviously wearing a Clipper uniform in his former town and his former organization, the Spurs. And I don't recall having ever seen this before unless it was related to a security issue or fans throwing objects onto the court or onto the field or onto the ice. I don't think I've ever seen a professional coach, maybe even a collegiate coach, but certainly not a professional coach, grab a microphone from the PA announcer in the middle of a game and essentially scold the hometown crowd for booing an opposing player at the free throw line who used to play for that team. Like, I, I was blown away by what I saw from, from Greg Popovich. And, listen, I, I'm, I'm in lockstep with everything you just said, Al, about uh, sort of code of conduct and just, you know, sheer decency and respect for players and, and for athletes and whatnot. I'm one of these guys that absolutely despises, you know, trash talking and, 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 and BS and cat calls at games because most of it's lame anyways. People think they're funny. They're not. But if you're actually picking up a microphone and telling a crowd in San Antonio – who's paid their money, that they don't have the right to boo Kawhi Leonard because they don't like Kawhi Leonard or they don't like the way he left, I thought that was pretty weak on Pop's part. And I'd say that I, I don't know if I've ever said that because, to me, he was batting a 1,000 before I saw that on Wednesday night. I don't know what you think. I don't even know what Jonesy thinks. But I, I was not impressed with what I saw, and I was actually shocked that he even did it. Yeah, well, well, you don't know what I think or Jonesy think, but we know what you think. It was weak. <laughs> so I, I mean, it's it's a and you got to realize it's pop, right? And pop, he's a guy now, and the more that I've watched him, he stands up for what he believes is right. And when you yep. get to a phase where you are, you're established like he is, um, you have the credibility, you have the relationship, you have all of these things where you're comfortable enough and you're secure enough to say, this is what I feel, and I'm going to do it at any point of the game, any time. This is, this is pretty much my show. And it's not, it's not, that's not a negative saying this is my show. This, this is, I'm, I'm, I'm just a big part of this organization, this community, this state. And, this, and one thing he said, this is not who we are, right? We are better than this. And what, what, what else is better when you have the head coach and you have 
someone that's a staple in the organization that's going to that's going to stand for what's right. So if I'm a former player or if I'm a current player or if I'm a player, my coach has our back. I don't care if I go somewhere else. So it's, it's something that's really, I think it can stand strong going forward. But at the end of the day, it's, it goes to what I'm saying. Why are we booing this guy? Why why are we booing this guy? We don't know like really what went on. You're booing him just to say you're booing him. And if someone, if 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 anyone can stand up for him, I'm going to stand up for him. So I think he has more than his right to do that. I'm not saying he's right or wrong, but I, I think back to when Vince Carter came back to Toronto and how the narrative, and we know how narrative can be put out there, whatever the case may be, and the way he was booed and for years and. Vince had no one to stand up for him. Like, Vince had no one to stand up for Tracy McGrady, Chris Bosh, Damon Stoudemire, like guys like this who decided to do something for their career or whatever, whatever the reasons. And we know there's a lot of things that go on behind the scenes that calls for players to say, I want to go somewhere else. It's not always just a player jumping ship. So I, think it's a, I, think, I don't think it's a bad thing when you have someone like a Popovich or someone in that position and say, you know what, enough is enough. Like you, you can you can boo, or you can do this, but we're not going to just boo Kawhi Leonard because he played here. If Kawhi Leonard never played in San Antonio, then you wouldn't be booing him. But also, if he never played in San Antonio, you might not get a couple of those championships as well. So just just enjoy the game from a standpoint of how you're supposed to enjoy it. So I'm not I'm not totally against it. I get your point, but I'm not totally yeah. against what Popovich did. I, 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 and- I'll, I'll let Jonesy. Let me just say one thing before you jump in. I know you want to jump in. Yeah, I'm dying this, to. Ju- I'm dying to jump in. I'm dying in, to jump in. In, in listening to Al, I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna take back one of my words. I'll take back weak. the word "weak" because it's yeah. actually strong. There we go. It's actually strong to stand up for the player to stand up for what you think is right. So I will take back that word "weak." I will stand by the fact, though, that I don't think that that was the place to do it. I think the place to do it might be post-game, not in the moment grabbing the microphone and telling 20,000 people what they can or can't or should or shouldn't do. Listen, were there probably some people in the stands uh, you know, uttering obscenities or being vulgar? I'm not naive. I'm sure there were. But if the vast majority are simply booing, if we're at a point now in professional sports, collegiate sports or otherwise, where we as broadcasters, let alone as players or coaches, are going to try to tell paying customers that they can only cheer – and otherwise must sit on their hands and not say boo, literally, not say a word of any kind of negativity, uh, we're in a bad place then, man. Like, listen. But, but, but I, think, I think it's not just they're booing. They're booing Kawhi Leonard, right? They're yeah, booing a yeah. former player. They're booing him for whatever. It's not that they're booing against the Clippers. They're booing a player who actually played and was very significant to their success. I think that's the part I think, of what Papa's talking about. I think the key word for me is personal. And I'll, I'll, I'll speak to my first experience in front of a big crowd at a high level when it got heated. And some guy said something to me. And I was ready to go in the stands and fight him. And the coach grabbed me and, like, you know, I'm a city kid. He said, hey, man, that guy paid his money. As long as it's not personal, he can say what he wants. Jones, you suck. You can't shoot. You know, you handle that thing like a football. He goes, that's just the guy paid his money. He can say what he wants as long as it's not personal. My own feeling is booing, especially when you're booing like a guy like that with Kawhi, 
And it's that some of that booing to me is personal and it never soothes the situation. The booing always, the cat calls and, and that kind of stuff, when it's personal like that, it takes on a different life and it always exacerbates it. It, it does not help it at all. It was like the whole Vince thing, like Alvin talks about, the narrative. And people to this day, some people still believe to this day that Vince should not have his retired number retired in Toronto because of the way he left. And I'm like, hey, wait a minute. You don't know the whole story. You just know what people told you. You weren't in there talking to Vince or management or anybody else. So you can have your opinion, but it's one of those things. The more you know, the more you don't know. I agree, Eric. I think Pop says that after the game at the news conference and it comes out later. But I, I'm, to me, booing never helps. If you want to cheer for your team or guys at a free throw line and you want to you know, you want to make some noise or you want to cat call him while he has the ball and it's not personal. I just think, and I'm going bigger picture here. It's kind of like, I'll say racism or, or sexism or anything else. There just needs to be an opening for people to jump in and make it about what they want it to be. Like the, like Al says, the booing of Kawhi is not booing the Clippers, that's now personal. And until you know the whole story, for me, I, I, I think it's wrong. I do think, though, that people can pay their money and go into the arena and cheer for their team and heckle the other team in a good-natured way and then let it go when you leave the gym. Just my thought. Uh, let me let ask, ask you guys a question, right? What, what is, what's the purpose of booing? Like I don't talking. see any purpose. It never helps. Huh? <laughs> to me, right. it never helps. Because right. I'd say to you, 90, I would say I think 99% of the athlete, whatever sport it is, if they're in a home, I mean, away environment, and the crowd is booing them, that's motivating them. Yeah. And that's not really – that's not helping your home team when they're booing. Now, if you cheer for your home team, that, that gives you more juice. That gives you – that but you just see the fan aspect if i'm booing if i'm booing jonesy and he's away jonesy now you're sticking to me so now we're going that engagement so yeah. now pretty much you feel like yeah. a fan just wants to engage you know wants to engage wants to get that attention and that's what they got but that's not really helping the team if i'm if i'm cheering if i'm if i'm cheering for eric at home now Eric has that boost. Eric has that confidence. Opposed to if you're at home and you're getting chaired, a booed against, now you're like, what the fuck? Like, what the heck is going on around here? Like, my own fans yeah. are booing me. Now it's counterproductive. So the idea of booing is just a personal thing that fans are allowed to do because they feel that they can do whatever, as you mentioned, Jonesy, at the time. I'm, I pay my money. I can do whatever you want to do. And just having that mentality of saying, I pay for these tickets. I can do, say, whatever. That just goes against, like, the morale of, like, people. You, you see that. But that's the nature of sports. And so I hold on. Let, me, let, let yeah. me jump in for one second now. I apologize for cutting you off. Hey. I, I got I to no, split no, hairs with you a little you bit, you, though. Don't apologize. Don't apologize. You did it. You did it. So go ahead and do it. <laughs> hey, I, hey, it's a Canadian way, man. It's a Canadian way, especially on Thanksgiving. Al, 
<laughs> Everything you're saying makes sense, and I'm not necessarily disagreeing with you and Jonesy, but I'm splitting hairs a little bit here. Let's look at Wednesday night in Indianapolis. The booing, in my opinion, mattered when Gary Trent was at the free throw line and 20,000 people are screaming down on him in a clutch moment, and he wasn't able to knock down two free throws. Was that just because he's struggling at the line this year? Probably. Was it in part because yeah, he, he had 20,000 people booing and making noise? Yeah, he shoot, yeah I, I get that. He's not, he's not shooting well, but... But I, if you think those said, people aren't making an impact, making noise like that, or if you're in at Arrowhead in no. Kansas City, or if you're at, at Highmark Stadium in Buffalo and you're opposing team and you're coming down, you're at the five-yard line, and you got those people barking and screaming at you, the dog pound in Cleveland going nuts on you, that's not impacting the quarterback? When those people are no. booing and going crazy and making noise, man, come it on! It no. absolutely it is. No, it's it not. shouldn't. If, if it is, if though, we've seen it. Well, it it How? impacts like, to who, me. Who it, you, it impacts. Let me ask you this, E. Let me ask you this, E. Who have who have you ever talked to and said, "I missed those free throws. I threw that interception. I fumbled the ball because the crowd was booing." Listen, that I don't think I don't think anybody in their right mind would or should admit that. But when the results are there, when guys are throwing so you, either, so, say it again. So how do you know they're doing that? Like, how do you know? Like, and, and I'm just and I'm just telling you, if someone if someone was to come to you and just tell you you can't do it, you suck, e, da, 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 is that going to impact your interview? Is that going to impact you on camera? Or you're going to you're going to lock in more and do it'll your motivate job? you. It'll motivate you. I, I, look, that noise, e. That noise might disrupt the snap count, and it might make it difficult for the team. But as an individual player, if you're, as a professional, you need to focus on your job. And, and, and the other part of that, you hear guys say, when they make it, did you hear the booze? Nah, man, I'm focused on the rim. Yeah, they can make, you, they can't touch me. They can make all the noise they want. It's me and the rim. And if, if it does impact you, then then maybe maybe you need some better mental training as a yeah. as a and, professional and, as an athlete. And I'll say this, Jonesy, I've never been in a stadium of eighty thousand. I've never been at the end zone. Yeah, I've never been in Seattle. I've never been there. But as far as from basketball, where it's twenty thousand, and by the time that fourth quarter happens, or by the time whatever, it's just noise. It's white yeah. noise. It's like yeah. you just you just hear noise, and you're you're locked in. And as Jonesy said, and I'm, and not, and I'm not going to be naive, so naive that there are some players that will get rattled, but yep. it's more of the moment. Like if 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 you're if say Gary Trent Jr. missed the free throws, which you know he's the most calm, relaxed. He's not showing any facial expression. We've seen him make big shots. We've seen him do so many things. It'd be hard for me to say he heard booze and that's what made him miss those free throws. Now. He could have went and missed those free throws because he wasn't secure with himself because he hasn't been shooting well. He hasn't been doing those things well. And now everything else is seeking. But I can't say that a fan booze or 20,000 people have ever, my, for just my experience, have ever had me scared to make a pass or scared to or, or second-guess myself. I just haven't been in that situation because, you practice those situations over and over. Getting planted the carrier dome, playing MSG, playing in Philadelphia. There's a lot of things that go on in those games. And you know, you played in games, I'm sure Jones, you're like, there's people outside waiting for you that's ready yep. to do something to you if you if you play if you win a game or if you get into something. So there's a lot of scenarios that are pressure cooker scenarios 
where I can't necessarily say in a basketball game. I can't say football, hockey, baseball. I can't say that. But basketball, that noise you become accustomed to, and you really want to stick it to them because it's not a better feeling. It's not a better feeling than you can say, or you look at the crowd and say, I can't hear you, whatever the case may be. Yeah, no, I, and, and listen, the gravity of the moment is not lost, E, to your point. Like, if you, I, I, like we've been there, Al. You're in a game, and it's a guy makes a shot on the other team, and you're on the road, and that's a big shot. Like, it puts them up two with, like, 18 seconds, and the crowd goes wild. You'd be a fool if you didn't say, dang, that's a big shot, man. We, we need to – but yeah, it should – it. It Heighten your focus. Like your awareness as an athlete is is in tune to the right things. And I, I sound like the guy right now that has his master's degree in attentional focus. But your e that stuff, if it's bothering you, then you need to take your uniform off and 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 go to a library and do something and, else. You know, because and you know when you, when you're a kid, right? You 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 practice those moments like. Yes. It's like you ever, yeah, Eric, Eric Smith is at the free throw line or Eric Smith and you, you make the own noise. <sighs> you make those mm-hmm, noises. Mm-hmm. Like you, you practice those things, right? Like it's one of those things where you just can't wait for that moment. You can't, you can't wait for the moment. And, and yeah, I will say there's some athletes, there's some athletes that I'm sure that, you know, having that feeling, but I feel like the home court advantage, it helps the team the home team more than it helps the more than it distracts the away team, right? I don't think when guys they make a big thing playing on the road, playing at home, when you have a Toronto Raptors crowd and they're really into the game, right? They're really into the game. That helps your team. But then I never forget the time when LeBron James was there. He's like, listen to this crowd. You don't think that was motivating LeBron James? Like yeah. that crowd in Toronto, like they appreciate that. It doesn't scare them. It doesn't deter them to, you know, from being, you know, more than who they are. They appreciate that environment. That's the environment we all want to play in, you know. So I don't, I don't think that's the point where a lot of players are really to come to the pressure. So I mean, and it's different perspectives. Like I just gave my perspective of just a few of my experiences. But again, I've never been in the end zone and had to make a play and not hear the play count and not hear this or misread that or whatever. So. It, it could. So I guess that's a good you know, a, a little test that you can ask a lot of athletes and how they feel about it. Al, we appreciate the time and the conversation as always, man. We always get into great topics. Uh, again, happy Thanksgiving, and we'll look forward to seeing you this weekend. And, and with, with all that being said, shout out to the Toronto fans. I love them. That was our friend, our colleague, Alvin Williams, of course, longtime Toronto Raptor, former NBA player, and what a great conversation that was, Jonesy. Man, I, I – I wish we weren't up against the clock because uh, I wanted to keep going with Al, and I know that the archives in the Jones residence probably have papers and studies that you know you could dig up and, and show us. Maybe maybe this is like a, a separate podcast for another day where we're really going to dig into the psyche and the mentality of the athlete. But, man, I stand on my feet here and, and say – you can't tell me that noise doesn't impact at least the at least the first couple years of a of a of a player's career before they get used to it. But I digress. You guys played at a higher level than I ever did. All right. Thanks to Alvin Williams, Jonesy. Thanks to Chuck Swirsky. Thanks to our crew, Austin Mackey, Mark Boffo. For Paul Jones, I'm Eric Smith. Again, make sure you subscribe to Smith and Jones wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back again next Thursday with another edition of Smith and Jones. <laughs>